First of all, it's of course that's reframing the way we see communities in the sense that they're not passive receptors of information, you know, that can just be nudged by experts towards certain desirable behaviors, but actually that they are active agents of change. And in that sense, that ties in very much to empowerment that they have a lot of knowledge, they have a lot of capacities, but it's just that often they are not empowered or even like the people I work with, they don't feel as if their knowledge is valid because they have always been, you know, told that the only valid knowledge is that of people who have university degree or work in high level organizations. Well, you know, if you talk with them, they have so much amazing knowledge about the landscape and all the history and so many really valuable things that I think are super important to consider. Hello and welcome to Life with Fire podcast, the podcast that explores our relationship with wildfire and how we can better coexist with it in the future. I'm your host, Amanda Monti, and today we are talking to Isabeau Adelini. Isabeau is a PhD candidate at the University of Catalonia in Spain, and she is an expert in wildfire risk communication. And I have known of Isabeau for, I guess, a couple of years now. I met her at the International Association of Wildland Fire Conference in California last year. And I recently posted something on Twitter, as is often the case with podcast episodes. I came up with an idea from this post that I made on Twitter and that got a lot of engagement. And it was talking about kind of communicating about wildfire and how to better communicate about wildfire and especially about wildfire risk. And Isabeau came in and kind of chimed in with some of her perspective and some of the research that she's done. She's done a significant amount of research in this area, in this realm. So she is a foremost expert in talking about wildfire risk with communities, doing what she calls community-led communication about wildfire, and really empowering community members over educating them as an approach to this fire communication that she does. And one of her main points is that these messages, this communication should really not be top-down and one-directional. It should be multi-directional, and folks that are landowners and members of the public should be informing the folks kind of at the top of that as much as the folks from the top are informing those on the bottom. So really making this more of an empowerment approach versus a one-directional educational approach. So we talked a lot about that. We talked about her research. I will put a link to her research in this episode's show notes, and you guys can go check it out because she does a lot of really cool work, and a lot of it is, of course, oriented to Europe and to Spain, but she has done a little bit of work in the United States, and she has some insights about the U.S. as well and how we approach our fire risk communications here. So for those who communicate about wildfire for their job, whether that's in public affairs or as a PIO or as a journalist or in any capacity, really, those even who aren't traditionally in a communication role, but that might end up with communication responsibilities just by way of being in a leadership position or leading an organization or anything like that. So I think this is a really informative episode for almost anybody who talks about or even really thinks about community resilience to wildfire. And we talked about how communications are an essential element of being resilient to wildfire and ensuring that folks understand what resilience looks like, but also understand the role of fire in the landscape and also understand how to respond to wildfire in a very acute way, whether that's with evacuations or in a broader sense with actually adapting to wildfire. So there's a lot of elements here and there's a lot of things that wildfire communications cover from the resilience building stage to the response stage to the recovery stage. Before we get into today's episode, I do have a little bit of housekeeping. I have mentioned this in past episodes, but we do have an open call for pitches right now, and we are looking for pitches related to how vulnerable communities are impacted by wildfire and also how they're building resilience to wildfire. And so we are looking for 
preferably early career audio journalists and folks who live in these communities that have been impacted. But if you'd like more information about that call for pitches, we have that on our website, which we will link in this episode's show notes. But to give you some of the important information right now, that application deadline is August 1st, and this is a paid opportunity, and we are going to be paying $700 to $1,000 per accepted episode, and we're hoping to accept two to three episodes with the hope that we also can potentially accept more pitches in the near future with more funding. The funding for this project and this initiative is coming straight from our Patreon members. And so if you are interested in supporting this work and future grassroots storytelling about wildfires in the West and in North America in general, you can go over to our Patreon. I will link it in the show notes for this episode and you can become a patron. And we have tiers from $3 a month to $20 a month. So you can kind of pick and we super appreciate any support you're able to provide. Like I said, it supports the types of grassroots storytelling that we're really hoping to encourage more of in the near future on the podcast. And bringing in more contributors has been a goal of ours for a long time. And we're really excited to get some more perspectives from the ground, from the folks that are experiencing these impacts firsthand and can share that story a lot better than I possibly could, considering it is their own community and it is their own experience. So if you know anybody that might be interested in that, we would love for them to submit a pitch and just keep that in mind and share it with anybody who you think might be into that. All right. That all being said, let's get into our episode with Isabeau. Thank you, as always, for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm Isabeau Delini, and I'm a PhD candidate living in Spain. And my work is at the Open University of Catalonia. And I'm actually also part of a European project called Pyrolife. So a lot of different layers there. So this European project, it's basically aimed at training like the next generation of wildfire scientists. And we're 15 researchers across all of Europe working on the different dimensions of wildfire. So in my case, I work on wildfire communication. Particularly, it's by doing research on community-led wildfire initiatives. Basically, like, what can we learn from communities about communicating about wildfire? You know, often we don't make the effort as experts to actually listen to communities. So I was like, hmm, maybe we should look at the other side of the coin and learn from folks that are already doing great things on ground. And as to my background, my bachelor degree is in environmental sciences and my master's degree in social sciences. So I'm a bit of a mixed background and I've previously done work on, well, of course, wildfires, but also extensive grazing and environmental conflicts. I mean, wildfire is definitely something that always comes back in my life. What brought you to wildfire communications specifically in your PhD work? Was there something that inspired that, like a specific acute moment or experience? Did you experience a wildfire? Did you see something lacking in the way that your community was talking about wildfire? What was the impetus there? Yeah, that's a good question. So ever since I've lived in Spain, so I moved here when I was 11, wildfire has been a constant companion. You know, like every summer I would smell the smoke in the air and see firefighting trucks or helicopters And sometimes fires would be further away, sometimes closer by. And then actually during my bachelor dissertation, I did a little like environmental education program on wildfire prevention with a local school here. So that was like the first time I got to work on wildfires. And this was really just from my insights that, of course, yeah, wildfires, it's often framed as a natural disaster. But yeah, we have to work with the people who are of course, affected by the wildfire and have to find ways to live with this element in the landscapes. 
Yeah, I think that's been one part of it. And then, as I mentioned, I worked on some other topics and then the Pyrolife project emerged and they had this really interesting research topic on wildfire communication. I was like, okay, now this is the time for me to get back into wildfires and really also make a contribution from my insights from community initiatives. Because as I said, it's not something that's so much researched. And as I, throughout the years, have made my networks in this area, and I know that there are a lot of people doing things, but it's not researched. So I was like, well, now is the moment for it. Yeah, this is so needed. And I can't wait to hear about your insights. There's been many reasons that this conversation was spurred because I've always wanted to chat with you on the podcast. I feel like you're kind of one of the premier sort of communications experts in this realm, especially being that you are doing your PhD on this topic. But I posted something on Twitter like two months ago, as is the case, I feel like with a lot of the guests that come on the show, you provided a great insight as to creating spaces of shared decision-making. It was kind of an insinuation of like empowering folks and encouraging them to be part of the decision versus educating them or coming at them as an expert. Can you talk a little bit about that approach and how you see that play out? I would love to hear some more insights on that approach. Yeah, sure. Of course, I talk mostly from my context here in Spain. There's a very clear definition of the problem. That is, wildfires are getting ever more disastrous and we have to do something about it. This is a valid framing, but it comes very much from the firefighting sector. This perspective on wildfires is then what informs wildfire risk communication in the sense that, okay, wildfires is a problem, people are at risk, people have to take action to decrease their risk. But then when you start talking with people, wildfires, it's not their top one priority. And even communities that have experienced wildfires multiple times When you start listening to them, you actually realize that they consider wildfire as like the visible manifestation of a lot of underlying social, environmental, political issues. It's these issues that are much more long-term and more invisible that people are actually much more interested in working on. So with the people I work with mostly here in Southeast Spain, they mention, you know, things like rural depopulation and a lack of true participatory democracy or society being very individual focused. Those are the things that for them are really the important thing. And then once you start working on that, you can also then connect that to wildfires. But if you just yeah come in and say, okay, we work on wildfires and that's it, it won't connect to their experiences, their interests, their needs. So it's again, really like flipping the coin and seeing, okay, using the community's experiences as a starting point and not the expert view as starting point. I think that's really the most important thing I've seen so far. I want to like dig into this a little bit deeper. Like, again, you didn't explicitly say the word empowering, but I feel like that's kind of what you were getting at or like rather like encouraging people to sort of have a little more agency over these processes encouraging that as an agency or encouraging that as an organization over coming into the conversation as if you want to manipulate the conversation, almost from this PR perspective, right? Like, how do you maintain your humanity when you're having these conversations? Like, how are you seeing that play out actually on the ground? You mentioned a little bit about what people's perceptions are on the ground, but I just want to like dig in a little bit more to that and like what you're actually seeing on the ground and what's working and what's not. Yeah, so there are three different things that I could mention on the ground. Wildfire risk communication, it has three major limitations. One is that, you know, experts, they decide what citizens have to know and do. I already mentioned that a bit. Then that communication is done very much top-down and one-directional. 
and that the messages are super simple, you know, like all wildfires bad and that's it. Yeah, I've been really through working with communities, looking at, okay, what are other ways of working around that and learning from their own work? So first of all, it's of course that reframing the way we see communities in the sense that they're not passive receptors of information, you know, that can just be nudged by experts towards certain desirable behaviors, but actually that they are active agents of change. And in that sense, that ties in very much to empowerment, that they have a lot of knowledge, they have a lot of capacities, but it's just that often they are not empowered or even like the people I work with, they don't feel as if their knowledge is valid because they have always been told that the only valid knowledge is that of people who have university degree or work in high level organizations. Well, you know, if you talk with them, they have so much amazing knowledge about the landscape and all the history and so many really valuable things that I think are super important to consider. So in that sense, when we work with these communities, I mean, I'm not reinventing the wheel, but it's just like, you know, really make efforts to listen to them, foster trust, really make this space of dialogue possible. And then also changing the mentality, right, of that experts always know best is not always true, you know. And instead, like, how can we learn from interacting with people and then as experts with our knowledge, support them in their processes? So that's on one hand, one of the things I've seen. And then, of course, regarding like how to move away from top-down and one-directional communication, this is something that's been talked about. That It is important to create dialogue and make sure that everyone is involved and that people's voices are heard. I mean, this goes beyond just talking about wildfire risk. It's also really important in the sense of when you create this multi-directional communication, It allows people to share their emotions, to validate their wildfire experiences. I mean, wildfire, it's also a topic that often has a lot of tensions and conflicts around it. And just imagine, you know, if you're a community and the government says, well, you're not allowed to use fire for, you know, agricultural burns and there's no space for dialogue, that creates a lot of tensions. So if there are these spaces for more open dialogue, then this can really help to mitigate these conflicts. So these are a few things that, yeah, just from the top of my head, that I think are are really important to consider. Yeah. I am curious. I think you've done a little bit of work in the US, right? Or have you? A a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was there for five weeks, which is a short time, but it was great being there. Yeah. I'm curious to know if there's anything or if there were any parallels or if you were sensing that things were a little different here versus in Spain. I'm curious to know what your real life actual experience told you about this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So my time in the US, I mean, I've been in three different states, California, Colorado, and Massachusetts. Each place is of course very different. And then comparing that to Spain is again, very different. So I'm not sure if I can really say any particular similarities or differences. I think it was just super interesting for me to see that again, in the US, there are a lot of communities doing great work also in that sense, inspiring for what is happening here with folks on the ground. It's also true that in the sense of wildfires and wildfire disasters, U.S. is also more advanced in that sense. Well, advanced is not the right word, but there are more things going on in the U.S. 
in Spain, we haven't had major wildfire disasters, but like every year <laughs> we're like, oh gosh, now could be the year. And it's like a miracle. It hasn't happened yet. In that sense, I think it's important to see that, yeah, how can we help communities to build this resilience and also prevent wildfire disasters and not wait until disaster happens to take action? Because that's unfortunately often what is the case. And then lastly, I think what was super inspiring for me is just like all the indigenous knowledge, the use of fire in the landscape. And in the sense that, you know, in Europe, there are not really indigenous people except for in the high north of Europe even the folks here you know in rural areas aren't considered as a different group they do have lots of interesting local and traditional knowledge which again I think looking at the U.S. and just seeing how indigenous knowledge is acknowledged and used yeah, how can that also happen maybe a bit more here in Spain or in other rural areas in Europe? That's a great insight. I got a little stuck on something you mentioned earlier, which is just, well, you mentioned the word resilience. Thinking about resilience from a communication standpoint, this is something I've been thinking about a little bit more like the last two weeks is just like how I feel that communications should be a larger part of like the resilience framework. And there's a lot of different resilience frameworks, I feel like, between like, I think there's like a Tahoe regional resilience framework, and then there's like the Fire Adapted Network. But nonetheless, a lot of them don't explicitly call out communications as a priority of the resilience. There's education, and maybe there's like creating connections with the incident management team, and there might be building fire adapted communities or whatever it is, but none of them explicitly call out communications as a priority. But I'm wondering yeah. if you've ever thought about this. Yeah, well, first of all, like resilience, it's a big field of research and uh, definitely not an expert in that. But what I can say is that it's true that communication is often not so much included in a lot of wildfire management plans or anything that talks about resilience. But I think it's because we also have a very limited view on communication in the sense that, at least from a risk communication perspective, it's more the focus on, well, we have to create these messages that have to be conveyed through these channels to this audience. And that's basically it. But really, communication is so much broader. I mean, it also includes looking at what social networks exist in a community. And these can be formal networks, informal networks, anything. Also, all the processes of social learning, you know, through day-to-day -day communication, what do people actually learn from each other? And it's a lot. It's also super difficult to research because, you know, it's in daily interactions. How can you really, on a very concise level, research that? But it is happening. And also collaborations, for instance. It's all based on communication. And so I think all those things are super important and also ties in with, then again, resilience because it is true that in places where there are social networks and where people can learn from each other and exchange experiences and collaborate and feel that they're heard, yeah, they do tend to have more resilience to wildfires. That's great. We talked a little bit before I started recording about how this is a great time to talk about this kind of stuff because people are interested. It's early season doesn't look like we're going to have a super wild fire season in California this year, but the Northwest is looking like it's probably going to be at a higher risk than normal. But now is the time that people are starting to think about how their organizations can talk about fire and prepare people for the reality of fire and for smoke and all these things. So I'm curious if you have any insights or any specific tips or 
anything that you've gleaned from your research that might be of use to folks at this point in the season? Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, I think it was like two weeks ago, I published a little report with a lot of recommendations on that. It's called A Toolkit for Fostering Co-Creation and Participative Community Engagement with Vulnerable Communities at Risk, which is a mouthful. (laughs) It's a title from the European Union from the project, but it's basically an overview with a lot of practical recommendations, examples and resources for how to communicate about wildfires in ways that is like more inclusive, more locally situated, and more participatory. There is a whole list of things that it would for sure, I think, be useful for people to look at. Yeah, some of the things I mentioned there is, as already said before, you know, the importance of just sitting down with people and listening. What worries you? And as experts, how can we help you in that instead of just going directly into a community and say, well, you need to create a defensible space and that's it. Because, you know, sometimes people, for whatever reason, can't do that. So first people are experts. They have to see what our community is actually able of doing. Then also what is important, at least I've seen it here in Spain, because wildfire seasons are getting worse over time. And again, this year, there's a drought going on and, you know, we're all feeling a bit scared <laughs> or at least not happy about the summer. You know, this drives a sense of urgency and informing certain communication strategies that are super counterproductive in the sense that really scaring people into compliance or very simplistic messages of all wildfires are bad, no fire at all is allowed. And so even though there is a sense of urgency to really think critically about your communication and has the message landed and can people do something with this? There's this really nice quote, which goes, the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. There are great campaigns where a lot of time and effort has gone into, but if people are not able to do anything with that information, then it doesn't really make any sense. I think also, of course, adapting your language to people, to their interests, to their needs, but also like just adapting it to English or to Spanish or to the languages of different communities, because it is true that, for instance, in my area, there are a lot of tourists from Northern Europe and all the wildfire risk communication campaigns are in Spain or even in the local language, Valenciano. And so they don't really know what is going on or what they should do when there is a wildfire and those kind of things. But yeah, I mean, these are just a few things, but uh, really like for a more exhaustive list and also resource, I definitely recommend to look at the report uh, that's just been published. Yeah, I will definitely put that in our episode's show notes. Okay, my last question is, I sense that there's probably still some gaps in the research happening on this topic and maybe something that you personally are hoping to accomplish or achieve or look at, dissect a little bit. So are there any gaps here? Like, what are you looking for? What are you potentially hoping to work on in the future? Hmm, That's a great question. I mean, one of the gaps that I personally find interesting is the whole topic of storytelling. And of course, Bethany Hannah and I, we wrote for the IWF magazine on storytelling some time ago. And I have the feeling it's like the field of wildfire storytelling is a bit more developed in the US, but not so much in Europe, which would be super interesting to look at. And I mean, I'm not only talking about a research gap, but also just, you know, a gap for wildfire communication practitioners. 
that would be super interesting. And then as to my own research, I am trying to, you know, fill in that gap of what do communities do and know and how can we help them? So that's my little contribution to the wildfire world. Although I'm now in the full writing phase and I'm not sure yet when my research will be published, but it will at some point and I'd be happy to share it with you all. (laughs) Yeah, I would love to amplify that once it's published. Do you have anything else that we missed? I know that there's probably so much that we could talk about, but did I miss anything glaring that you want to touch on before we take off? Yeah, actually, I was just thinking now of a few more other recommendations that might be good. I mean, there are so many that it's easy to forget some of them. Again, wildfires, we often talk about them as if they're like super simple things, natural disasters, you know, focusing only on the very visible parts. And again, you know, very strong framing of wildfires are bad and that's it. But when we communicate wildfires, it's super important to really dare to dive into the complexity and the ambiguity of wildfires and acknowledge that, yes, they are complex. And yes, sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad, sometimes it's mixed. Also, just because, you know, people, they do know and they do understand things. We shouldn't treat them as stupid, (laughs) which unfortunately happens at times. And they're curious to know more. So we should help them to learn more about the things that they're interested in. And then also, again, relate to storytelling, just, you know, get creative with communication. It doesn't always have to be a social media text or a brochure for people. I mean, it can also be stories and poems and drawings and theater. Try to get creative with the folks you're working with, because that's also a way of communicating about wildfires. And Sometimes in these creative processes also, it links up with the emotions and lived experiences, which is very enriching uh, for communities. That's such a good insight. I guess I hadn't considered to this extent that side of storytelling, right? Like the poetry, the theater. I love that idea of engaging different groups in small communities in those ways. And like, this is such a shared experience at this point in the West that those opportunities are only going to continue because people are going to have more and more experiences and more and more of their lives shaped by this force that is beyond their control. And sometimes the only way you can really work through those things is via storytelling and sharing that experience in ways that are like beyond how I share my experiences. Like I just do creative nonfiction or journalism or essays or whatever it is. But thinking about those other mediums for sharing those experiences is really fascinating. Yeah, exactly. And engaging with people in this way and also creating space for emotions, it again, it allows to take the core focus away from wildfires itself, but also all the other things that are going on in the community. Again, you know, maybe people are not able to create a defensible space because they can't make ends meet. And so maybe these more creative spaces is also a way of expressing, okay, well, We would love to become more resilient towards wildfire disasters, but we're really facing this issue and we're trying to find our ways to deal with it. There are so many things that are there to consider. And again, I wish I knew of more creative examples of communicating about wildfires from a community perspective. And I'm sure that there are a lot, but the thing is that often this is so local that unless you live in those communities, there's not really a way to know about it. Yeah, I'm sensing really that communications in general are both hindered and benefit from the highly localized aspects Mm -hmm. of communicating about very specific landscapes being impacted by this 
very acute specific thing that's happening in a very often short amount of time. There's like this element of like, just like wanting to empower individual fire communication practitioners in each individual community to be able to be that person so that it's not coming from this person outside of the community or this like national public affairs officer, like this like random social media page or like the folks that come in on instant management teams and are often not from that area. It's just like, I would just love if we had this network of communications practitioners that like lived in each individual region or community who were really knowledgeable and who could maybe be at the forefront of some of these creative initiatives, but also are there as a connection during active wildfires too. Mm -hmm. Just because it is so hyper-local and people don't necessarily trust people coming in who are like from a totally different forest, totally different region. And being able to be like, listen, I live here. I coach the little league team. I am a teacher or I'm a coach or I'm a contractor in town or any of these things that are like a deep connection to the community and where they also understand what's going on at a landscape level or at a management level and not in like any sort of super expert way, but just enough to be able to communicate to the folks that trust them. I've been thinking a lot about this lately and like what I feel like I want to see more of in this realm. And that's a big part of it is just more localized if possible. I mean, I'm exactly on, on the same line of thought and it would be great indeed if there were more people, you know, wildfire experts and practitioners that engage with the communities they live in. And in that sense, I can, for instance, talk from my own experience. That's So the people I, I work with for my research, they had a big wildfire in 2015, but then also another one last year, which was even bigger and it was really impactful. And during that time, I mean, I always have like my researcher hat on, but I'm also a volunteer at that group. And I'm, of course, also a local inhabitant. So at that time, I actually helped a lot with a lot of the communication because, you know, they had a lot of questions. There was a lot of misinformation going on. Also a lot of need for like more reflection on, okay, why do we have, you know, two big wildfires in only seven years? What is going on here? So in that sense, like just from my personal experience, I, I could help them and share my knowledge and my insights. And indeed made me realize just how important it is, right? To have like this role of intermediary between communities at the local level and then expert or scientific knowledge. I mean, not only to ensure that scientific knowledge arrives to communities, but also vice versa, which again, that's vice versa as what I'm trying to do with my research to get all this knowledge from communities and have scientists learn from it. <laughs> yeah, I love that. We just need an Isabeau in every community in the West. <laughs> <laughs> Someone studying fire communications for their PhD. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> totally realistic, right? <laughs> I think that there's such a huge gap there and it can just be somebody who has firefighting experience or somebody who has dispatch experience or somebody who works in land management or formerly worked in land management in almost any capacity and understands the landscape and maybe understands to a certain degree like IMTs or fire resilience and can be that sort of conduit between the experts, the so-called experts and the agency employees and all of that to community members. That's often where I see the problems arise is that you come into a community as like a PIO, for example, and you kind of expect people to just listen because it's like, you know, you're in a bit of an emergent situation and you're like, listen, this is what's going on and this is what we need. And people still have to build trust. They have to build that rapport with you before they're going to be willing 
to really listen to what you have to say, unless it's like incredibly emergent. So like, mm-hmm. yeah, when you're coming in and you're just like, you don't know the landscape or you're not from that forest and you're talking to people on the street and you maybe don't know like some of these landmarks or maybe, you know, it's your first day and you're unfamiliar with the sort of local dynamic. Yeah. That takes away from that rapport that would be incredibly benefited by having that local conduit. So incident management teams, they do this, they get local stakeholders, they get local leadership, community leaders to come in and to be those community, like the trusted sources. But it's just a thought, you know, that beyond that immediate fire response, we can have those folks working for wildfire education and communication as well. This is such an interesting topic. (laughs) It is. I mean, (laughs) I'm already researching this for three years, so it's good that I'm interested in it. Otherwise, it would be a very long time. But indeed, what you mentioned, it's super important um, to have these like intermediaries. I don't know what would be a better word for it right now. I mean, this also came up with lots of my interviews that with wildfire practitioners and experts, that's sometimes like the most meaningful conversations is when they're just, you know, hanging out with community members at the bar or, you know, doing some forestry stuff or whatever. In that sense, I think also an important reflection is that wildfire communication, it doesn't have to happen in formal spaces or channels. It's often through these very day-to-day interactions, uh, which are actually most meaningful. And I suppose it's because it has the human element in it. So I think that that was very nice to see with a lot of my research and then also my personal experience here engaging with communities. Fantastic. Well, that was a super fun and informative conversation. I feel like I learned a lot. I'm just thinking of all of the different groups that I'm hoping to sort of target with this conversation. And I think that it'll be super insightful for them. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Like it's been really fun talking with you and yeah, sharing some of my insights and also listening to you and your experiences and thoughts. So thanks again. Yeah. Awesome. Well, have a great afternoon, evening, and yeah, I'll talk to you soon and hopefully we'll see each other. We'll cross paths at some point when you're back in the States. If you ever come back to the States, I'm hoping to go to Spain at some point. Actually, that is a great idea. I'm going to come to Spain and hang out with you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sounds great. I'd be happy to show you around all the wildfire areas and all the communities. There's a lot to see for sure. Oh my gosh. Okay, I'll add that to the list. I've always wanted to go to Spain. (laughs) Cool. All right. Well, thank you, Isabel. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. All right, folks, that is what we have for you for today's episode. Huge thanks to Isabel for coming on the show and for being, I think, one of our very first truly international, not North American guests. I'm thinking back. She's our first European guest, no doubt about it. But super appreciated her coming on the show and sharing some of her insights and research. And if you want to learn more about the work that she's doing, you should check out her website. We'll have that in this episode's show notes. Other than that, I will just leave you guys with the recommendation to go and give us a review on Apple Podcasts if you feel so inclined, if you're digging what you're hearing and you like what we're up to, we would super appreciate a review. We always love those. They help with the algorithm. They help get us in front of more people and that's always appreciated. So with that, I just wanna thank you for listening as always and catch you on the next episode.